0: Will those of you who can stand, please stand with me for the reading of the word of God. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you Pat for the reading of the scripture and it is good to be with you as a congregation of God's people here today. I want to begin by simply thanking you all for your prayers and your cards for our family as uh, our, my father-in-law passed away, Sharon's father passed away back in September. It was, uh, it was an intense time in which the last several days of his life were also spent in vigil as we stood by his bedside and cared for him, holding his hand. I'm thrilled to see you today, thrilled to see all of you here today, including faces, some faces I don't recognize, which is a good sign. It tells me that there is life here, and that in that case, that indeed ministry is taking place among God's people, as it should be. Some of us are a bit grayer than I've seen before. <laughs> no names, please, as I look in the mirror. <laughs> and the faces of longtime members that are no longer with us, that too is, is very noticeable. I was so sorry to hear of the recent death of Ray Yoder just this past week, right? Right? I agree, and I, I grieve I grieve with you in that. No one knew the ins and outs of our house on 66 North Cross Street than Ray did. <laughs> and we had more than one occasion to call him when the plumbing went awry, and Ray was there. Of course, uh, I also appreciated Ray for his, his dry humor, and maybe some of you can relate to me on that. I remember when uh, Floyd and Esther Van Pelt were married. Floyd and Esther, hi there. Remember when, when they were married, it was the night before the wedding, and we were all here in this room, we were all standing up front here rehearsing the ceremony as, as it was. And in the course of that moment, someone mentioned that Esther, who had in fact lived with uh, their, their mother just next door to Ray and Catherine for, for, for many years, that she was now, of course, moving out and moving in with Floyd and actually moving out of the immediate neighborhood. And someone asked Ray in the course of that just what that was going to be like now, not having Esther right there nearby. And Ray said, Well, he said, as it seems to me, I'm not losing a sister, I'm gaining a garage. (laughs) And so life goes on. Life goes on. We grow and we become stronger. We age, and we count the days. We tell our stories as death intrudes upon life, and we rehearse our hope in a resurrection that we really don't understand all that well. But we want to believe. We want to know that it is real. And I would say that that would be true of the vast majority of of humanity, Christian or not the very question of the resurrection, the question of life after death is vital to all people, I believe. Anyone, in fact, who reflects even for the slightest moment on what life and death actually mean. A few years ago, Sharon and I made our way to the Field Museum in Chicago. And one of the reasons we went, one of the reasons I wanted to go, was to be able to see the exhibit of China's first emperor and his terracotta warriors. Now, if if you don't know what I'm referring to here, in 1974, some farmers were digging a well in China, and they began to dig up clay figures, heads, bodies, limbs. You know, it was rather disconcerting for these farmers that they were digging up these body parts, even though it was just clay, but they, they didn't know what to do with that. Well, it seemed to be of some significance, so archaeologists took over the dig. And what they discovered was an underground mausoleum about 38 square miles in size. It was complete with more than 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots, 670 horses to go along with non-military figures including officials, acrobats, strongmen, animals, and musicians, all that were created in clay in life-size form. Unbelievable. This this stupendous effort was apparently commissioned by one Qin Shi Huang in the 3rd century B.C., long considered the first emperor of China. And and the purpose purpose of building this underground palace was so the emperor could continue to rule over his subjects even after he died. The 8,000 soldiers and military hardware were all there, apparently, to protect him in death and probably to help him conquer heaven just as he had conquered earth. Okay? Funny thing about this clay palace, though. Qin Shi Huang had it built primarily as a way to hedge his bets. You see, he was also searching for the elixir of life. And any mythical potion that he could come up with which would grant him eternal life. And his alchemists and personal physicians were more than willing to grant him immortality by mixing ingredients together that were thought to cure the diseases of of his day. You know, ingredients like mercury, sulfur, arsenic. Indeed, under the direction of his physicians, he was ingesting a drop of mercury every day to achieve immortality. And that's what killed him. So I guess he then moved to his underground palace where he rules today in the dust of the archaeological dig. You know, there's some things you just can't make up, right? (laughs) But it does occur to me that Qin Shi Huang wasn't that far off the mark in sharing with others a a prevailing concept of life after death, a prevailing concept of what resurrection may look like. It seems as if he and many others agree with this regarding the nature of death, and that is that death will somehow look the same as life. Now, Qin Shi Huang fully expected to rule in death, just as he had ruled in life. He fully expected that death would be a continuation of life as he knew it, and he had no reason to believe otherwise. At least, that's not what he wanted to believe otherwise, because if he continued to believe as he believed, then he would be able to remain in power, power that he had already possessed in life. He would just be able to carry it over to death. And so he prepared for death the very way that he had lived life, centered on himself and his thirst for power. And again, I ask, how is our world any different today? What are the questions that we ask about death and life after death? And are they any different than those that have been asked for generations past? What will life after death look like? Will we know our spouses, our families, our friends? Will the future be any different than the present? What do we need to do to make life after death somewhat satisfying? Is there hope for eternal life? What will the the resurrection look like? What can we expect? What are we guaranteed? And don't tell me that you've never thought any of those thoughts or, or considered them. Because they're not merely theoretical questions, are they? But they are thoughts And emotions that emerge out of the heartbeat of life in the hospital room, in the hospice center, the bedside, or any context that includes separation and loss. These are the cries of the heart that often have no rational response, but they need to be asked anyway. And why? Because resurrection matters more than ever. In fact, I believe that that's why this day has been especially set aside by churches, say, in the more liturgical tradition. As I was thinking about what what God would have me to share with you here today as as Pastor Matthew invited me to come, it occurred to me that as I looked at the church here and and where we are at in this church here, that this is the first Sunday after All Saints Day. And if you know anything about that, you'll know that is a time when the church often recognizes those who have passed on before. And it's a time to remember and to recognize the grace of God in the context of those persons and simply to celebrate the saints, celebrate the saints of, of, of the Lord. And so it's a time in which we can indeed understand or ask the questions of the resurrection that they are foremost, foremost in our minds. An opportune time, even if we don't follow the church year as some other churches do, it's still an opportune time to voice our questions about resurrection. And in that sense, I believe that it's a very helpful tradition. But here's the rub. We can spend a lot of energy asking about or imagining the details of eternal life or we can channel that energy toward how the security of that promise might make a difference for how we choose to live out our lives now. Whether we choose to follow Jesus, now. What we envision, now. In a kingdom made up not of clay figures of our design, but of living generations that are reconciled to each other in Christ. Do you kind of follow what I'm saying here? the orientation of our resurrection questions may very well determine the focus of our faith and who is actually in control. Which is why it is so important to have this interchange about the resurrection between Jesus and the the Sadducees, even if their intent was to somehow embarrass or or discredit Jesus. For you see, the, the Sadducees, were an aristocratic priestly political party who believed that the only valid scripture to them was the Torah. And the Torah includes only the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the whole Bible of of the Sadducees, Okay. And because they could not find any direct reference to the resurrection in any of those five books of the Bible, they declared that resurrection did not exist. So what we have here is a scenario, a scenario involving one widow and seven brothers, and a scenario in which the Sadducees are baiting Jesus with this bizarre question about the resurrection in which they themselves did not believe. Now what they did believe, what they did believe, was the concept of leveret marriage. It's a concept that was taken from the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy, and it was a way of ensuring that the family line would continue. For the, for the Sadducees, if there is no resurrection, then you only live on in your lineage. No descendants means no future existence. Your name is lost forever. So passing the widow to the next of kin then protects the family name and the woman who is now the property of the family. Catch that? The riddle that they framed for Jesus is based on this belief, a belief of the handing over of property from one brother to the next brother And in this case, it's the story of a widow who is passed on from brother to brother to brother until no brothers are left and the widow finally dies and then they ask the question, who does she belong to? Notice how Jesus responds in verse 35. Those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage Indeed, they cannot die anymore being children of the resurrection. And then he goes on in this wonderful way that Jesus often does to go onto the very turf of those who are asking the question in which he then refers to Moses. He talks about Moses who, in fact, is talking about a God of the living, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he's proving the existence of the resurrection in the very book of the Bible that the Sadducees say there is no evidence. Interesting. So, in, in all of this, then, Jesus met the Sadducees on their turf. He invalidated their objection to the resurrection because if there was a resurrection, even of which they did not believe, they were still basing their question on a hypothetical question on the false assumption that earthly conditions persist in a heavenly world or the assumption that eternal life is an endless state of more of the same. Is that what we want for eternity? Is that what we want for the resurrection? It's what the Sadducees wanted. Why wouldn't they? They were a privileged party. They were a party of power, a party who looked down on all others around them. They were already living their reward. Why would they want anything different? Why could they imagine anything different? Which is precisely the point, because Jesus insists that the resurrection life is qualitatively different. Resurrection life is not merely an extension of this life, but it's something that is wholly different. And maybe that is the message, if we hear nothing else, the message that we need to hear today when we ask, what will resurrection life be like? Because our imaginations can only take us so far. And our ability to visualize the resurrection life is oftentimes based on our life as we know it today, or life based upon what we want or wish life to be now. As much as we believe in the promise of the resurrection, it seems that our greater faith in ourselves sometimes sidelines the promises of God. You know how we try to angle ourselves into a position that is most favorable to us. That's what's happening here. And so we attempt to orchestrate our future life with God as much as we try the very same thing in the present, to lay claim in the present. And in doing so, we, we overlook the very promises of Jesus who, that he makes about the future that should have an impact upon our lives as we live them now. But what, what, if, what if we were to live our lives in the present? With a value system that is based not upon what we think is normal or upon what we think we see, but a value system that is based on what is to come or an eternal kingdom to come. What if we didn't try to define the future by how we live in the present, but that we live in the present based on our hope for the future? That's something that's hard to to get our minds around, isn't it? Because we know how easy it is for us to think in in, in the other direction. Have Have you ever thought about how the religious elite in the scriptures often used the powerless and the marginalized to build themselves up? You know, we hear these stories again and again in the Gospels, how they build themselves up and they score points against Jesus in this way. For example, a mob of Self-righteous men drag a terrified woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they dare him to let her off the hook in violation of Old Testament law. Elite dinner guests berate a broken-hearted woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears. The Pharisees criticize Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the Sadducees, concoct a story about a vulnerable woman who has passed from one man to another like human chattel just to trip up Jesus. In each of these examples, the actors attempt to put themselves in the best possible light according to their own vision of faithfulness. In each of these examples, the person in pain is considered expendable, in each account, the very soul is ripped, out of for, is ripped out of human suffering for the sake of argument and debate. And in each case, a resurrection moment led by Jesus equalizes most favored status and reinstates the gift of humanity, not the least of which is not the story of a vulnerable widow, released from the slavery of being passed around like a piece of property, that in turn she may enter the realm of the heavenly kingdom as a child of God, as someone with a name, as a child of the resurrection. No wonder the marginalized flock to Jesus while the privileged find him intolerable. No wonder we're being challenged even to this day, to strive for an image of the living kingdom that hurdles over the death traps of privilege and ideology, over the law and traditions, the kinds of things that hold some people in and keeps other people out. Yeah. Jesus says, Eternal life doesn't look like life as we know it now. And while we will never have a vivid picture of the resurrection life in this age, what we do know is that it's not the same old, same old. If the Sadducees talked about women belonging to men, Jesus talked about people belonging to God. If the elite were looking for status, Jesus made sure that the first was last and the last was first. If if society was tripped up by the specter of death, Jesus pointed them to the God of the living in whom we have equal access. So, if you're trying trying to pin me down and asking, what is resurrection life like? I'd have to answer that I I don't know. When we reach heaven... Will we recognize our loved ones who have died? I don't know. Although Jesus' reference to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob suggests that indeed there may be some kind of relationship there with the risen cloud of witnesses, with those who have gone before us, that in fact there may be something there. But we don't know for sure what that will look like. I'm simply saying that I don't know the specifics of eternal life. So what do I know? By faith, I know that my Redeemer lives. By faith, I know that because Christ is raised from the dead, the resurrection of the dead comes through Him. By faith, I know that as children of the resurrection, we draw our life from God. For God is a God of the living in every generation, not the God of the dead. By faith, I know that neither Rome in Jesus' day nor the principalities and powers of our day will have the last word. By faith, I know that because God will keep God's promises and and will enact justice even beyond, now and beyond the boundaries of this world. I know that the church today is the visible sign of the hope of God's kingdom. What kind of a kingdom is that? A kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. A kingdom that looks a lot like the Sermon on the Mount that you all have been working with, that Pastor Matthew has been working with you through the past several Sundays. That's the hope that we are looking forward to today. And I know that nothing, nothing in all creation including death nor life, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah! Amen. I invite you to turn to number 71 in Sing the Journey, the green song books. We're going to sing this wonderfully prophetic song that as prophetic songs go, we don't always understand what the whole song is trying to say. But there are nuggets that you can find in within it and you can really hold on to. And one of those nuggets that, uh, that I have found in this, in this song was at the very end of the second verse, the last line of the second verse, where it tells us that the standards of death taken down by surprise. It seems to me that that is the gist of our entire account in this 20th chapter of Luke here today. The standards of death taken down by surprise. Praise God for the gift of the resurrection.